0: The title of the message is, Bowing with the Many or Standing with the Few. Bowing with the Many or Standing with the Few. You know, a few days ago, I had this flashback. I I loved it. So anyways, I'm watching this game, and um, the the announcer said something, and I thought, Oh my goodness, I have not thought about the mentality of actually playing baseball for so long. I just kind of grew up throwing the football with my sons, but I played baseball, and here's the thing about baseball, you're always thinking about what the play is. Like if you're on the field, you, you know if the ball is hit to you, what you're gonna do with it already. It's like, you're, you don't wanna make that decision once the ball comes to you. You're actually thinking, okay, what's the play? You know, if you're at shortstop, I don't wanna get in the weeds, but if you're at shortstop, and there's two outs, let's say, and there's one person on base, and it's a full count, you know, to the batter, you're thinking, if I get the ball, I mean, yeah, I could go to second and it could end the inning, but the reality is is that they are actually sending their runner already. They have a jump on on, on the base. so I, I'm already made the decision. that comes to me, I'm going to first base. hopefully we get out of the inning. You, you just you're there before you get there, and you're decisive. you're always thinking of scenarios, but the principle is, hey, you got to be there before you get there, and you're making decisions. Before the circumstances unfold that kick in, that decision. Are you tracking with me on this? Here's the thing: the only way you could really understand these wonderful Jewish, you know, believers in the word and the Lord God of Israel as they're taking out of Jerusalem back to Babylon, this pagan place, is they were there before they got there. They they, they clearly had made the decision where they're going to go with the ball, so to speak. And this is critical for all of us. It's very critical in the time in which we live that we are decisive. It's like we're there before we get there. We made that decision. Oh, chaos in the world, I've made the decision that my full trust is in Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm going to face temptation. I know where I'm going with the ball. It's done. It's like now I'm a father, you know, raising a family. I, I, I know what the play is. I'm I'm already there. Um, indecisiveness is a killer. One psychiatrist asked his uh, patient, are you indecisive? And the guy said, yes and no, he said. (laughs) He said, what do you mean by that? He said, I used to be, but I'm not sure, right? William James said, the most miserable person in the world is the person who is habitually indecisive. When Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, uh, he's, it, the word pure there actually speaks of a singleness of heart. I've made the decision, my heart is the Lord's. It's not i like, okay, well, the circumstances are going crazy. We can't control outside circumstances, but we can control the dynamics of our inner life. So we need to be there before we get there. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going we're to look at snapshots in Daniel, and uh, we're going to go to Romans next week, I hope, and... Um, we're going to look at snapshots because this is the key: is to be decisive. And I just want to pray, Lord. I just pray this would be monumental for all of our lives in the context of the times in which we find ourselves at this time, and that is in exile, if you will, in a type of Babylon, a broken world. We believe in your second coming. Of course, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the meantime. We want to we embody the faith and the allegiance and the decisiveness of Daniel and the rest of them who just honored you in a big way and impacted their generation. Help us with this. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said amen. So here's the thing. Context. Daniel chapter 3. The context here is you have the king of Babylon who has built this 90-foot gold statue Uh, you know speaking of baseball I think the I think the you know the bases are 90 feet from each other right I think it's not 60 feet it's 90 feet so this is quite large obviously and it is made out of gold some have surmised 4,320 cubit feet of gold and it's like well why is he doing this very important to understand pick it up here in verse 1 Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Duran, the province of Babylon. And the king, Babylon, or, or king of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps and the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps and administrators and the governors, a lot of administrative detail here, counselors and treasurers, and the judges, the magistrates, all the officials of the province gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud to you, it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time, You hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all the music. You shall fall down, shall bow down, and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace so uh, That time when the people heard the sound of the horn and the flute and the harp, the lyre, symphony with all kinds of music and the people and the nations and the language, they fell down. They worshipped the gold image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What's going on here? Well, look, here's the immediate context. King Nebuchadnezzar has already been told that Babylon is not an eternal kingdom. He had these troubling dreams of this big figure. You don't want to lose yourself in the details there. Really big monster figure and the head represented the Babylonian kingdom and the chest, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian and eventually the Roman Empire. And then an empire that would impact the entire world that, that would be judged by God and God would set up a kingdom here on planet Earth. That's the kingdom that Jesus is building. We're the citizens of that kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's like when Daniel interpreted this troubling dream, and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, I mean, you have Nebuchadnezzar, he was blown away by the insight. Now what is he doing? Well, I mean, this figure is actually, it means basically a couple of things. One is, the Babylonians worshipped the god of gold, Marduk. So, It is both religious as well as administrative. It it, it represents not only a religion, it represents an administration and a nation. And in fact, it represents the authority and the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar himself. So it's like, wait a second, wait a second, Nebuchadnezzar, what are you doing? I mean, are you trying to hold on to something that is temporal as, as if you could make this eternal? I mean, now, what you're doing is you're going outside of the word of God that has been revealed to you, actually. In fact, Bill, if we can just put up this next verse on the screen later on. I mean, this is like his mentality. The king spoke, saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty oh wait a second you hey nebuchadnezzar you're headed in the wrong trajectory here in fact right after this he goes crazy i mean literally he goes crazy i mean he sees himself as god that is a bad decision right there listen despite the many times the lord revealed himself to nebuchadnezzar daniel interpreting the dream as we're going to See in just a little bit the boys, these wonderful Jewish boys having their allegiance to the Lord God of Israel. They're not going to bow. We're going to look in a second. They're thrown in a fiery furnace. God delivers them all of this revelation uh, to Nebuchadnezzar and he refuses. It's almost as if he's becoming inoculated to the truth. He's exposed to the truth. He doesn't allow truth to set him free. He resists it. He builds up antibodies, and it becomes increasingly self-defeating in his life. Okay, this is what's happening. Hey, listen, it tells us in principle it's not enough to believe in God. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the Lord God of Israel. I believe ultimately he's converted after a seven-year period of going insane. But the Bible says even Satan believes in God, so much that he shudders. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's acknowledging Daniel's God, but he's not course-correcting in his life, and his lack of decisiveness makes him go crazy. Let me just say this. The sooner we recognize that there are certain things in life that last forever, and there's other things, of course, that do not, the better. It's like, well, it will last forever. And this is the great investment. Invest in the will of God. It's like, follow Jesus Christ Those efforts will last forever. The kingdom of God, the love of God, what we do for God, the will of God, the word of God. Those things last forever. Those things are tied to the glory of God. Wait, they never break down. But there is such a thing as God replacements. They're called idols. It's like, you know, we think little sticks and stuff. No, no, well, look, an idol is a God replacement. Actually, an idol can be a good thing. But because it has a prominent position in a person's life, it becomes a bad thing. And a good thing can become a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. You say, like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. I just made that up. No, just kidding. No, I know. I know. What I'm, I know I'm getting to a point. I mean, it's like, it's like the Lord said to Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. Chief allegiance needs to be the true and living God. It's like, how can you have other gods? There's only one true and living God. Yeah. It's like the Lord said, I'm the Lord, and there's no other God. Apart from me, there's no other God. But there can be God replacements where we're looking to persons or things in life to deliver what only God can in our life. That will drive a person crazy. Say, well, what are you talking about? Well, in Greek culture, you have Aphrodite, the God of beauty, I mean there's nothing wrong with a little fashion there's nothing wrong with you know what you know taking care of yourself but the reality is when it comes to beauty uh, we're all subject to let's just say the law of gravity right <laughs> it, it's just seriously it's like you don't want your identity right you don't want your identity in your physique you just don't want your identity because reality is is that will abandon you one day. Idols treat you terribly. And if it's a person, well, it's like, I love my wife. I never want to be away from her. I'm glad I'm going to spend eternity with her. I'm convinced her, her mansion in glory is going to be much bigger than mine. I just hope she lets me in. You know what I mean? So, but it's like, I don't want to be away from her in any ever, right? The thing is, but... You know, she's my bride. You know, I, I, I Jesus is my Lord and my King. Uh, my point is, is that it's like my hope is in something much more secure. She's secure in Christ. She's going to live forever, of course. But the reality is there are the death of loved ones. God forbid I don't want to see the death of my wife. But, I mean, there are the death of loved ones. And it's not like they leave us. Death happens. And it's like if I'm just like if my whole identity is in a person that, like, when, when, when there's an absence of that individual, it's just not despair. It's crushing to the very core. Let me tell you another idol. In Greek, Hephaestus, it's the god of work or a god of accomplishment. So it's like, hey, listen, you don't want your, your idol, your, like your chief value, based upon a performance-based mentality. So it's like if if you're doing good at work or you're productive and stuff, then you're feeling fantastic about yourself. Because there's going to come a time where we lessen in productivity in our life. We we age and stuff. And if our identity is based upon a performance-based identity of production or name recognition, man, that is a cruel driver in a really big way. Artemis, materialism, says life is in the abundance of what you possess. That is so wrong. Well, no, the one who dies with the most toys wins nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, Paul says, "I learned to be content. It's like I learned to have a sense of well-being in life which is not based upon possessions. It's based upon who you know, Jesus Christ and how you think. Jesus said, "What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world?" Which tells us, "Hey, you're can to have a lot of stuff, right? but you can lose your soul. So again, like, what is an idol, a God replacement, anything that I'm looking to to deliver what only God can in my life? The boys had already made their decisions. Like, here's the thing. They get in Babylon. Getting back to baseball, they're like, I know where I'm going with this ball. I've already made the decision. I mean, the Lord God of Israel is my chief allegiance. It's it's like remember what Jesus said: don't worry about those who kill the body, but worry about your soul in terms of eternity. Hey, can I hear an amen to that, by the way? So I mean that the most popular thing to preach. But listen, the Lord said it for a reason. And that's right perspective, right? They had made their decision. So when they get to Babylon, it's like if, the, if the, there's an option between, like, the Lord God of Israel or some stinking man who thinks he's God, which, by the way, is just a little foreshadowing of the future Antichrist. Um, hey, we're going, we've already made the decision. In fact, let's just kind of pick it up here in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Let's just jump ahead in this story. I love this. This is, like, one of my most favorite passages in the Scriptures. It says in verse 12, there are certain Jews... Whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, Is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the fiery furnace. And who is the god? Who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, Look, again, they know, they know where the ball's going, right? They're there before they get there. They've already made the decision on Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I love that. There before, yes, I, I'd love a little clap. I mean, there, hey, there before they got there, flat out, made the decision. It's like, I'm not, they didn't get to Babylon. I'm convinced of it. It's implicit in scripture. They didn't get to Babylon and say, like, hey, what balls are we gonna get? Are we gonna fly ball? Are we gonna get this? Their allegiance has been established. And you guys, here's the thing. We live, of course, in the greatest country outside of Israel. I mean, it's a gift, but we live in a broken world. We, we live in a type of Babylon, right? We are in exile, if you will. And, and here's the point I just want to say, church family, we're going to hear the music to bow. You say, what are you talking about? Well, we're going to hear the music to bow to the fear of man, I mean, you're going to always say, oh, the cancel culture, right? you're going to hear it. You're going to be at work and it's like, hey, you take a stand for Jesus Christ or you quote scripture or, you, you know, you're true to your faith. It's like you're going to feel the pressure to bow. And here's what's critical. We've already made the decision we don't bow. It's like, you know, it's like the fear of man is a snare. Like Paul said up here, we have it on the screen, he says, for, I, for I'm now seeking the approval of man or of God, question mark, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Jesus Christ. And the point is, and we have in the screen, we have it in your notes, but it's like when we hear the music to bow to the fear of man, it's like I'm there. I've been there before I already you know, get there. I've already made the decision to live for an audience of one, period. I'm just going with the Lord here. That's critical. I'm going to share something with you. If we're not decisive, if we're not there before we get there, then we're going to just be fumbling the ball. It's like the ball's just, okay, I caught it. And then I'm like, where does it go? It's like, no, these guys are already thinking, I catch a fly, it's going to second. I'm I'm making a play. We have to be there before we get there. We're going to hear the the, the sounds, of music to bow to temptation. I think of Job, who just said, "You know, I made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to look upon the opposite sex." I'm paraphrasing it in, in an inappropriate manner. It's like it's not like I've made that decision. I said, "Job, I just made it, right?" It's akin, actually to repentance, because the, the word repent actually is the word metanoia, which means change the way you think. I've already made that decision. Are you guys with me on this? It's like, well, no, no, I, I'm going to get, a, I'm gonna get a, a ground ball, I'm gonna get a, and then I'm going to make the decision. No, that's not the time to make the decision. The time to make the decision is now. I'm there before I get there. It's like I know I'm going with the ball, Right? So it's like that's point two, and these are like little devotional points. You can pick up the notes if you haven't already, but I think we have it up on the screen. Hey, when you hear the music, to bow to temptation, I'm there before I get there, is I've already made the decision to refuse it. It, It's done. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. We're going to hear, and we're hearing it, just bow to the chaos, bow to the confusion, be tempted to give up. no. No, 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 actually, the third idea is, um, you know what? The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Do you realize that this is the most fruitful time of harvest of people coming to know Jesus Christ in the history of man? You say, well, gosh, man, it's just getting really dark. Yeah, but the light is shining as well. And if we look at our own country, you guys, there's been dark days in our country. After the Revolutionary War, it got so dark that You cannot find one Christian at Harvard. And I'm not talking about today, right? I'm talking about a long time ago. And Harvard was dedicated, it was a seminary initially. At Princeton, there was only two believers found at Princeton. Students rioted. They burned Bibles, Christian students were so few on campuses, they met in secret, they recorded their meeting notes in code, lest they should be discovered. I could go on and on. Hey, do you know that there's a new survey out? It's like, I have not seen this in a long time. And I've been around for a long time. I've been alive for 100 years. Can you notice? So they said, Barna survey, big shift in church attendance for millennials as they seek something real. I haven't seen a server like this in a long time. I can't even remember. There's an uptick in millennials seeking out church post-pandemic. Well, just a few years ago, the generation received brunt of jokes and stereotypes, barn of pens, embodying youthful naity and disdain for responsibility. Gener- generation Y is now turning ages 25 through 40. Generation Y and Z Christians are looking for a community that holds to self-evident Judeo-Christian truths, like gender and marriage. Hey, praise God for that. But even more, one that is filled with the gospel, the gospel message and all of its implication is at odds with the message of the world. that leads to Christians being marked by courage and civility and clarity in the face of a confused world. Oh, that's fantastic. Point is, that there's opportunity here. Hey, listen, if I ask the question, is the world a tinderbox, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but some say it is. I mean, are we closer to a global government and potentially a catastrophic Great Reset? Um, I think we're closer than ever before. But on the other hand, the gospel is spreading to the nations in an unprecedented rate. I mean, today Christianity is exploding throughout the world, actually. The church is experiencing the greatest growth in history. Worldwide numbers of Christians doubled in 40 years, from 1.1 billion in 1970 to 2.2 billion in 2010 in Africa. It was estimated that Christians exceeded Muslims for the first time in 1985, now over four times as many Christians in Africa as there was in 1970, and almost the same is true in Asia, Well, the Christian population of Latin America over this period has almost doubled. I love it, right? So it's like, here's the point. The point is, I already made the decision. Oh, man, there's chaos, there's confusion. Yeah, here's the decision. I'm going with Matthew 9.31. And Jesus said, look out, the harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers are few, right? So we don't want to pack up for the airport yet. The Lord still has us here. And he said that the gospel needs to be preached throughout the world before his return. You guys, there's more. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. Oh, I'm excited. We're going to be here till about 1215. No, just kidding. I love this. Daniel chapter 7. Hey, listen, as we begin Daniel 7, just another little snapshot, and then we're going to pray. Uh, Daniel 7 begins the transition from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel is some 80 years of age at this time. I love it. He's made one of the chief leaders in the empire. He's one of three chief governors. And we're going to read just a little bit. The other governors were very jealous of him. You know, just got some political dynamics taking place. They, They wanted power. There's no doubt about it. In fact, if you just go back to Daniel, if I could just quickly say... You know, it's, it's, it's the story, it's the narrative of man trying to be God. You see it there, it's still today. I mean, we talked about this last week, but the darkness behind the darkness, the mystery of iniquity that will lead to Antichrist, you know, in the temple declaring himself to be God is an attempt to replace the true and living God, saying that man is God. That there is no uncreated one. We're it. We've got a fallen world we've got to deal with, So we're going to most likely connect, you know, biology to technology and transhumanism, all these different things that give us an advantage. But if you go back to Daniel, the dynamics were similar. Technology is different. but The dynamics were similar. And that is that, you know, these guys were rejecting the uncreated one, the Lord God of Israel. They saw themselves as God, and they're trying to build empires to move that narrative. Well, at this time, he... He's an incredible leader, which tells us, uh, does it not, that as we age, there's potential for our influence to actually increase. That is important. So all my brothers and sisters out there, I don't know your age, but just know as we do age, looking at Daniel's life, obviously there's just one Daniel in history, but in principle, the opportunity for our voice to have more significance and to be influential is a possibility. We have the next generation who are looking to us. This is critical. We're all finishing strong, right? So he is one of three governors at this time. In fact, if you just look with me at chapter 6, verse 28, it says this, Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Darius, Darius excuse me, actually means... Uh, head of the scepter. We believe it is a title. We believe this individual is Gabaris. We have extra-biblical works that support it. But, but verse 1 of, of chapter 7, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a... Oh, you know what? I'm in the wrong chapter. Wow, so sorry. Chapter 5, verse 31. So sorry. Yay. Darius the Mede received the kingdom... Verse 31, chapter 5, verse 31. Darius and me, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Okay, Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Verse 3, this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because of an, what's the next two words you guys There, Excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. We just pause right here. Excellent spirit within him. Yeah, outlook, strong inner life. That's where it begins actually. I mean, contentment begins on the inside. Joy begins on the inside. It's not circumstantial-based. So the the point is is that Daniel actually had this extraordinary, fruitful inner life. A great inner life. And Scripture places emphasis not on the external, but on the internal. You have like Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may be at home in your hearts. Or Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you, inside, right? Inside, who we really are begins on the inside. David wrote, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Inside, inside, inside. Psalm 1914, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. It's important to guard your home, get a fence up. Let's say, for example but the more to guard your heart. Now this, of course, it's not the emphasis, it's not the value in our culture. Now Jesus said, I mentioned this, you know, what would a profit a man if he gains the whole world? That's outer. But lose his, can someone tell me, soul. That's inner, right? And a little perspective here. Someone said this, if you're an American, you're rich, even if you're on welfare. If you're an American, you're rich. The people in this room, he said, you know, speaking to an audience, but it's true here, top, Two percent of income in the world. You're rich, no matter how little you make, because actually you're an American. Someone said, if you woke up this morning with more health than illness, then you are blessed than a million who will not live through this week. I mean, if you if you've never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of culture torture, excuse me, or the pangs of starvation, you are ahead of 500 million people in the world. If you can attend a church meeting without fear of harassment, uh, arrest, torture, death, then you're more blessed than 3 billion people in the world. If you have money in the bank, cash in your wallet, spare change in a dish someplace, you're among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. So why am I mentioning this? I'm just mentioning this because, wow, we are blessed in our country. Can I hear an amen to that? I mean, thank God. It's the grace of God. But again, those are external things. They are important. Emphasis in Scripture is inner life. And what we see here is Daniel's extraordinary inner life was actually maintained and facilitated and fertilized by rich and consistent disciplines that facilitated relationship with the Lord actually. Now as actually we pick up the story, Daniel's consistent disciplines were known by those who knew him. They knew he worshiped the Lord God of Israel. They they knew he actually prayed 3 times a, a, a day and they were they were, of course jealous of Daniel because he was just about ready to be the top governor. So they end up creating a scenario that would lead Daniel to breaking a decree that they're going to have Darius sign that no one bows and no one prays and no one worships any other god except him. So they create this scenario to ensnare him and trap him. Do you ever think that takes place politically? But anyways, you know, I mean, that's, that's actually what is taking place, right? So you have here in verse 10, we're going to speed up the story here. It says in verse 10, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed. It's like, you know, you can't pray to any other God. Then Darius, he went home. So what did he do? It's like he already knew where he was going with the ball. That's what, that's what happened. He was there before he got there. And in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, isn't that beautiful? Verse 10. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. And these Men assembled, found Daniel, praying and making supplication before God, and they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions? And the king answered and said, This is true. And according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel which is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. We're going to just pause right there. Many of you know the story. Of course, Darius is so upset that he got framed here. But... Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and he is not harmed. I mean, I could just imagine just kind of, he just has the lion's laying down. He's just kind of hanging out like, you know, with, you know using the lion as a pillow, the Lord delivers him. But the, the point I want to get to you guys is this. Church family, you know how the work of the gospel thrives in a generation it thrives when individual believers allow the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. I mean, we, it, 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 that's just a flat-off fact. So in other words, it's, it comes down to the individual, it comes down to each of us. So so often it's like, hey, we got an issue in the church. Well, let's call a meeting and stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. Let's pray. But it's like we're so committee-oriented. It's like, okay, we're going to tackle it with some type of meeting or something, right? No, no, meetings are important. But the reality is the way the Lord grows his church, the way Christianity thrives in a generation, impacts a generation, of future generations, is when individual believers uh, are hearing the Holy Spirit, are responding to the Holy Spirit, they themselves individually are growing, that spills over to making a contribution to the whole, and the church grows together point is, we all have a responsibility. That's what I'm just simply saying. We all have a responsibility here. And we all know that. And I'm so proud of our church family. Which, by the, But here's the point. The point I want to simply make is, when it comes to disciplines, which I know sounds a little sterile and stuff, discipline is nothing but consistent choices in a specific direction. When it comes to the discipline of, hey, like Daniel... You know, we're going to worship on a daily basis. We're going to pray. You know, when it comes to the discipline of like, um, yeah, I hear the music to bow to distraction, but I'm there before I get there. I've already made the decision that I'm not going to forsake gathering with other believers. Because the Bible tells us don't forsake the fellowship of other believers. In fact, look if we look at the history of our church here, um, it actually accelerated during COVID with a bunch of people who are like, man, we're not gonna bow, right? We, we, I mean, church is ecclesia in the Greek, and it means assembly, and a non assembling assembly is a contradiction in terms. But all I'm simply saying is this church family, let's be decisive. As we see the, 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 see the day approaching, I was speaking in tongues right there, do you notice that? Um, so if we see the day approaching of our precious Lord Jesus, all the more it's important we are together. And if this is not a legalistic thing, but listen, when we raised our children, we had made the decision we're never going to miss going to church. Now, granted, I was pastoring a church, right? So it's like, it's like, where's the pastor, you know? But I was going, but well, of course we would travel. And it was like, you know, and sometimes we'd try We didn't, you know, I didn't know churches in there. That's fine. But we would seek it out. And maybe it's a Saturday evening service. Maybe it's a Friday or. But we went on a weekly basis. My point is simply this. I mean, speaking of, uh, to some of the younger men and women who are raising their children, look, um, we got to be there before we get there. And when it, when it comes to the discipline of being with other believers, growing in a church. Someone might say, well, I just don't really need it. Yeah, but someone else needs you. That's the point. So it's like, just look, what's your decision? Because if it's going to be like, hey, we live in this world, there's a lot going on and stuff, and there's all kinds of crazy distractions, and so many things pulling our attention, if we're making the decision on the fly, I just don't think it's wise, do you? I mean, you look at You look at Daniel, he's like, Already made the decision, man. It's like, are you kidding? I'm opening the windows. I mean, Solomon spoke of this three times a day. I mean, what is Peter and John doing? Acts 3 It's the ninth hour. The rhythms of the culture of prayer, publicly, Jewish culture, they're headed to the temple. They're, they're, they're like praying. And when we hear the music to bow, just lastly, and I know I'm preaching in the choir, to a post. Truth generation. That's what we're living in, post-truth. The value of our culture is power. The value of our culture is centralism. And the power of, or the the value of our culture is career. That's the the values of our culture. We live in a post-truth, fact-based, revelation, uh, truth, uh, culture. The point is... We're going to hear the music to bow to post-truth lies. And it's like we need to be there before we get there. And, and, and the way that we're there is we've made the decision, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Can, can I hear an amen to that? And just the bigger picture, if I could just quickly say, is that, look, what built Western civilization is actually the scriptures. It's true. Not to say every founding father was a believer, evangelical. I'm not, not saying that. But what built Western civilization is, is, is actually the reality is defined in Scripture. Male and female and family. And f- idea of father and, and uh, revelation. And that God created us. And every human being has intrinsic value. The thing is, is that we're living in a time, we talk about all the time, that is proposing an alternate reality. We're in the midst of redefining reality. In some ways, you can't redefine what reality really is. You can try. You can try to do it, but that is what deception is, right? So in other words, if you go to a doctor, and, um, and this happened in our family where there was a test, and it was like, you know, that's cancer. It came back cellular as cancer. The doctor said, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. And it caused a lot of hassle. I mean, that was terrible. It's like, oh, really? So it isn't? No, no, I mean, no under the microscope, it, it's like this. Like, but it isn't. It isn't. Um, anyways, crazy stuff. I mean, just saying cancer is not cancer doesn't make it go away. Right? So it's like, look, the point is, my, my precious brothers and sisters and moms and dads out there, look, every day we need to be committed to the Word of God. Every day we need to be reading the Word of God. This is, not like, this is not to say if you do that, then you're gonna to go to heaven, no, no. We're talking about working out what Christ has worked in us. You know, it's like meditate on the word. I mean, this is the culture we came out of, a Hebraic culture of renewing our minds. What is informing our thinking impacts so much. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples. You'll know the truth, the truth shall set you free. Jesus said, thy word is truth. My point is, is that, look, alternate reality we're living in that's being proposed, we need to dive deeper, if you will. Already made my decision, post true lies. I'm there before I get there. I'm committed to the word of God, and I am decisive. And that's what we need to be in the times in which we live. And I just finally want to say, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they shall be filled. So happiness does not result by directly pursuing it. So it's like, okay, I'm going to be happy tonight. I'm going just, I'm to just be happy. Okay. And then what? It's like, that gets me in trouble, man. I'm just like eating chocolate and like ding-dongs or something. I don't know, right? Do they even exist anymore? Ding-dongs? Whatever. Do they? Yeah, brother, you need to kind of get rid of those. Anyway, so I'm just saying, yeah. Oh, we can talk. I, I, I've had I have a victory over that. Um, but anyways, it's just, yeah, it, yeah, this thing is like, the, the thing is, seriously, no. Here, here's the key to being filled and blessed. Okay. It's always the result of directly pursuing Jesus and doing what is right. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is what this message is all about. Be decisive. Be there before you get there. As I made the right decision, I'm pursuing the Lord. I'm, I'm pursuing what is right. Okay. And wholeness and happiness come out of that direct pursuit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Can I hear an amen to that? Let's pray, you guys. Lord, thank you for the most beautiful church family there could ever be. And I just want to pray this season in our life. Would you help us? Help me to be decisive, to be there before we get there. When it comes to temptation, make the decision. When it when it comes to the chaos, to like to give up in the time, made the decision. No, wait a second. Um, You know the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. When it comes to bowing to distraction and everything pulling at us, no, we're just made the decision. We're keeping spiritual disciplines. We're we're committed to local ecclesia. We're committed to your word. I mean, Lord, help us with that. I thank you for every man in this room. Just want to pray for my brothers. As you have called us to lead, you've called us to have godly influence in the time in which we live. So I just want to pray for my brothers, from the youngest to the eldest, some singles here, some uh, you know, fathers here, some grandfathers. Um, just thank you for every one of them. And I, I just, you know again, praying for myself as well, may it be a season decisive. No, we've repented. We've course-corrected. We've changed the way we think. And I just thank you that those who exercise yourself to godliness benefit. Thank you we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're going to be filled. Of course, it glorifies you. Um, And, of course, our precious sisters as well. Just everyone here. um, May we be decisive, decisive, decisive. Uh, Standing with the few, not bowing with the multitudes, O Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And I just want to, lastly, in just an attitude of prayer, boy, Jesus said there's a broad way that leads to destruction, and many go that way. I mean, just think about that. That's the multitudes. Um, but there's a narrow way that leads to eternal life, and if you be that, find it. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except to be through me. You know, wh- one day the Lord's going to come back. He comes back, it's... Known as the rapture, there's the resurrection of those who have gone before us. And in a, in a generation, maybe this very generation. And then in preparation for the return and reign of Jesus. But the point I'm trying to make is you got to be there before you get there. So it's like you, you got to make your decisions. Like heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Prepare to meet the Lord. He will not force himself on you. He loves you with everything, but he loves you enough not to leave you the way you are. Um, And the Bible says that we can be in a place, get this, this is radical, it's true, we're going to be in a place where we're in opposition of God. We're We're actually an enemy of what is true and right. And Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. So it's like there's no middle ground here. It's either for Christ or against him. If I'm not for him, I'm actually against him. This is the words of Jesus. So if you go in to vote for someone, let's say, for example, and you, and, you, know, you put an X there or you fill in the blank, it's like, okay, you voted for them. But if you don't, well, you know you did it. So it's either, it's either or thing. I'm simply saying that to lead to the importance of what Jesus said, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. So that's a choice. You have the greatest offer ever given to man, whole world, big, small, black, white. But he leaves us with a choice and please hear this. The Bible says actually he has set the heavens as a witness that he has set before us Life and death, blessings and cursings, choose life. So it's like we got a choice, right? So, hey, the ultimate way of, um, let me just say this, the ultimate being there before you get there, you know, before the ball is hit to you, if you will, and you know what the, the play is, not to be silly, but it's a great metaphor, the ultimate way to be prepared is to turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the Bible says these things are written that you might believe in him and that you might know you have eternal life, not hope it or think it. So sometimes it's like, you know, it's like I can believe in the existence of God or I can believe in the existence of Jesus, but please hear me. There needs to be a decisiveness that he's not only Savior, he's forgiven your sins, but he is Lord, which really there's no way to to, to dice him up there. He's both Savior and Lord. To be Savior is to be Lord, to be Lord, to be Savior. A genuine embrace of Christ will will result in the Lord coming into your life, forgiving of your sins, taking residence, uh, you know, giving you the power to be his his son or daughter, and transforming you from the inside out. And it involves a decisive decision. You say, Greg, what do I need to do? Recognize what he's done for you. You You can't do it by yourself. Admit you're a sinner. I need forgiveness. Jesus said, I need to repent. You turn in life, embrace him. Uh, The Bible says those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. He really is just a prayer away in a sense. He hears that heart crying out, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I believe. Lord, come take residence in my life. And I just want to give you an, an opportunity to do that. Like seriously, in this moment, in this moment, don't be like a Nebuchadnezzar who like, you know, gets exposed to all this truth and then he doesn't respond. And then it's, he just gets worse. I mean, the Lord loves you. And his love is perfect. And he hates anything that will undermine your highest good. He's fighting for your soul. So I, I pray, I hope that you open your heart to him. And if you'd like to do that, pray with me at this time. Church family, if you'd like to join, that'd be fantastic. But this is a prayer of asking Christ to take residence in your life. Pray with me. Lord Jesus I call upon you now to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for dying for me and paying the debt of my sin. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a great Savior. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, come into my life and fill me with the life of God. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for making me your child, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.